Welcome to Pick a Little, Talk a Little, the musical theater podcast where every episode we take a different musical and we dissect it until it has no more meaning. As always, I am your host, Gabrielle Gazelowitz, and with me today is... Izzy Gazelowitz. Why do you have the same last name as me? Why... It's because we're siblings. And now you have collected all the gazelloi. Before we start, this is give or take the eighth episode, and we have avoided up to this point doing musicals by a certain person because, frankly, I've been so intimidated. But we're going today to break the Sondheim seal. Izzy. Yes. What musical are we doing today? We are doing... Assassins. Assassins. You gotta start big, you gotta start relevant, you gotta start with the most famous one. To jump into it real quick, Assassins first premiered off-Broadway in 1990. Music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Book by John Weidman, 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 I don't know. It actually premiered on Broadway 14 years later in 2004 because they wanted it to come out around 2001, 2002. Yeah, and people thought that a musical about presidential assassination was not not in the best taste right after 9-11. And I will also say that what we do in the podcast is go through the plot and go song by song. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons I've been hesitant to do Sondheim really is because I like to talk about like, oh, the relationship between score and lyrics, but with Sondheim, it's... Like, he does little, like, tricks with the score to, like, comment on what's going on. And we all we can be is, like, lyrical dissonance. Like, it sounded happy, but the words were sad. Like, that's as much as we can do. Also, what we do in every episode is we both briefly just discuss our relationship to the musical. So, I have not seen this musical. I know the music well, and I've read the libretto multiple times, and I've seen a handful of YouTube clips. What about you? Yeah, I've seen a college production of this musical. Oh, at UPenn? Yes. I don't think there actually are really any full recordings of any kind of professional versions of this show, because it was only that one off-Broadway run initially, and then the one Broadway run in 2004, They both right? have cast recordings. But I've always been a huge fan of the soundtrack, and I would just walk around singing particularly the Battle of Cholgosh, the point that I know. my college roommates know the whole song by heart because of me. But we also only know so much about history. And whoa, 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 whoa. It's not about the history. If anything, this is a work of art that I do not care how many details it fudges historically. It's not trying for historical accuracy, because to get started, where does this show take place? This show takes place at some sort of um, assassin's carnival, where a... That transcends space and time. That transcends space and time, where all the assassins hang out and try to kill presidents while a weird person tries to sell them guns? Yeah, so there's like a game in the carnival, then they're in a bar, and there's like a park bench. So it's some kind of... A dimension made purely of cynicism. And in this dimension made of cynicism, we start with the first song. It's called Everybody's Got the Right. Everybody's got the right to what? To their dreams, Gabby. But these people's dreams is to kill the president. It's so, funny. <laughs> so we meet the proprietor, who's the a sort of carnival barker. Yeah, who only is in the song. He doesn't appear any other time. No, he um he also is like the radio announcer. He's setting things up and. He right off the bat, like, pulls someone aside who happens to be Cholgosh and is like, want to come here and shoot the president? It's like, oh, it's a carnival game. No, that gun is real. That man is a real presidential assassin, Cholgosh the assassin. So it's basically the proprietor trying to convince everybody to kill the president. Oh, you, like, your stomach hurts. You're an angry anarchist. 
But for some reason, out of nowhere, there's this weird thing with the women who try to kill the president. I was going to bring that up. But in order to convince the women to kill the president, the proprietor is basically like, oh, you're, like, you, you're not going to be able to shoot this gun. Like, you're a lady. And that makes them really want to kill the president. So it's almost like this weird kind of reverse psychology. I think he's legitimately doesn't really want them there. There's weird things about gender in this show. Yeah. That we will get to. But who are our assassins? We'll, we'll get into all of them in more detail. We have. If you haven't heard of them, it either means that they failed or that they killed McKinley or Garvey. <laughs> so we have Sarah J. Moore, Leon Cholgosh, Samuel Bick, John Wilkes Booth, Lynette, quote unquote, squeaky from, John Hinckley, Lee Harvey Oswald, Giuseppe Zangara, Charles Gateau. Lee Harvey Oswald oh, is yes. not in the show yet. He has not appeared at all. And this mysterious carnival barker convinces them all to kill the president and they all get to sing about how everybody's got the right to their dreams. Because, see, get it? It's all, like, subversive, because sometimes, like, oh, America has these ideals of, like, free country. You could do anything you want. Like, kill a president. And they are going to run with this for the next two hours. Okay. But what we should keep an eye on is how this show is approaching its general thesis, which is that there is a dark CD underside to American idealism, and that is that people can become wrapped up in their own visions of themselves that can manifest itself as violence. And here yes. are these examples of people who are violent in ways that are directly counter right. to the system because the president is the symbol of America. And it tends to be people who the system has in some way rejected. We're going to get a lot of this playwright whose name was hard, to, was confusing to pronounce, throwing different weirdos at each other and sort of being like, Oh, it's a bunch of crazy people. What happens if you put them in a room together? Yeah. Two two different effects. So, yeah, but, but but do we like the opening number? It's all right. We'll get to it. I prefer it as the reprise. I'm not so sure I'm a fan. I just think it's really catchy. Oh, okay then. So the last person who shows up is John Wilkes Booth, who right. makes sense to put first. Right. And the proprietor is like, hey, it's gang, it's our pioneer, like, you're the best, you're the first one, and, like, everyone sort of knows who he is. It, it has its own internal right. logic. But now, we, now we flash back to the actual assassination of Abraham Lincoln and then the aftermath. We meet the balladeer. The balladeer, it describes in the libretto as a 20th century folk singer carrying a guitar or a mandolin or a banjo. Yes. The balladeer is the narrator. It's a fancy schmancy word for narrator. Why do we need the proprietor? Couldn't the proprietor have become the balladeer rather than the other questionable choices? That's we get why to I'm not a big fan of the opening number, because I don't really get what the proprietor adds to the show. You can't have the balladeer convincing people to kill the president, because as we're about to see, the balladeer's whole point is to Fair. be this kind of mainstream American narrative about these assassins that like belittles, mocks, and minimizes what they did. So we start with the Ballad Booth. We love this song. Oh, this song is amazing. But so it takes place specifically in we we sort of hear off stage the actual assassination and Six Semper Tyrannus, and this song is taking place when John Wilkes Booth and one of his co-conspirators are holed up in the barn where we know that Booth is gonna die. Yes. If you know the history. One other quick interesting note, if we're gonna talk about the music in the limited capacity that we can. It feels like each song tries to kind of mimic some kind of musical style of the era to take place in. The Ballad of Booth. It starts with the balladeer singing about what a loser John Wilkes Booth is until 
In a moment that sounds cheesy, but I think really works, John Wilkes Booth interrupts the narrator and says, no, I'm a hero. Let's sing together about how great I am. In which he gets a slow, dramatic ballad about, you know, he did it for his country, which ends in him yelling the N-word. Well, there's the interlude because his co-conspirator, like, doesn't see the balladeer. Is that he's trying to narrate to his friend what he wants to do, and his friend is trying to go and surrender. Yeah, and the balladeer keeps interrupting his self-aggrandizing speech until he finally yells at at the balladeer. They sing together about how noble his act was. He yells the N-word, which is supposed to, I think, is obviously designed to sort of shock the audience out of his potentially, like, temporary sympathy with Booth. You're like, oh, you know, like, he's like, maybe he's onto something. And I think what keeps being emphasized is that he's an actor, right? He's playing this part. He's playing up how noble and wonderful he is, but it's an act. Huh. I Um, always thought he had just bought into his own Narish kite. That's possible, too. Yeah. It's also interesting because it switches back and forth between these two styles. There's the, John Wilkes Booth was a handsome devil. And then there's the, damn my soul. I can't sing very well. You sing, please. There's parts that almost sound like Civil War, like, soldier anthems. Ah, it's very effective. And after John Wilkes Booth gets his big dramatic ending to his number and is killed. Well, he shoots himself. He Spoiler shoots himself. Um, the balladeer jumps in and goes back to that jaunty beginning to say, wow, what a crazy person. Just the whole thing where, like, we gain a little bit of sympathy for Booth, weirdly enough, and he, like, tries to give us this narrative of him as a noble person. The balladeer writes it off totally. This it's is- like... No, he was crazy. Who, who is the balladeer representing and how omniscient is he? Because he goes, so he, he's talking about how, like, people don't know what Booth's motivations were. And he tells us, and this is why I th- why I was taking that he wasn't acting. He goes, Johnny Booth was a headstrong fellow. Even he believed the things he said. Some called him noble. Some said yellow. What he was was off his head. Interesting. Um, I feel like, as we'll see, in other cases, the narrator seems to just kind of outright mock the assassins. And he, like, joins in with Booth for a bit. And sometimes he's a little bit more sympathetic. We'll yeah, get to. we'll get to that. But I sort of wonder if maybe, like, this is trying to sort of speak to, if he kind of represents the American narrative, that, like, there is this revisionist, like, kind of racist, southern, pro, like, confederacy narrative, where the Baldur kind of joins in for a second. But at the end of the day, even he writes off Booth. And what else is interesting is that he burns Booth's diary with sort of last test yes. into what he's done. So then magically everyone's in a bar and they're all interacting and being like sitcom-y together. Yeah, but that's like every interlude. What is interesting about this interlude is Cholgosh. Yeah, well, I think he is the most interesting character in the. So someone breaks a bottle and Cholgosh gets upset and he goes on this monologue about how men essentially like destroy their lives in factories to do things like make that bottle. And Booth is like, you should destroy something, you'd feel better. And Cholgosh, he is the only one who is sympathetic beyond the point of like, oh, they were mentally ill, they didn't know they were, they didn't really realize what they were doing or something. Yeah. Well, Booth is the least sympathetic because his was the actual conspiracy. And so it's interesting to see Booth interact with Cholgosh. And Booth seems to have not like disdain for Cholgosh, but like, he also clearly likes manipulating the people around him. Yes. Like Booth's whole thing, as we'll see, is that he's trying to secure his own legacy. As long as people keep killing presidents, his act 
keeps being important. So, so we'll keep seeing that over and over again. The last show. thing that Booth does before he's just convinced Zangara to try to kill FDR, mm-hmm. and then he quotes Julius Caesar because it's kind of a thing with him. Yeah. Oh, he loves quoting theater. It's a little too meta sometimes. But it makes sense for Booth to at least quote Julius Caesar because he played yes. Brutus in Julius Caesar and seems to have over-identified with it, at least according to the show's interpretation. So Zangara is an Italian immigrant who has a chronic stomach pain. Yes. And nothing Very more. vague political associations. He talks about capitalism, at least in the musical, a couple times. But the song tries to make it clear that it's not about politics. He's just bitter and in pain and lashes out. And lashes out by trying to kill FDR. And but he does, he, does, he does kill the mayor of Chicago? Yeah. Yeah. So this is an interesting song. How I Saved Roosevelt. I don't like this song. It's very clever and Sondheim-y, and there are some delicious internal rhymes. This one is the most cynical. This is like, and then the people all thought that they saved Roosevelt by going on their stupid vacation, and they had a great time. Those losers. Yeah, basically the premise of this song is that, unlike the other ones where it's all about the assassins, Angara gets a few lines about how angry he is and how much pain They're he is. They're pretty compelling. Yeah, and how he tries tried to kill the president. But then these other, like, people sing in this, like, what, what, what would you say the, the style of this is? It's very, like, 30s. But everyone else sort of sings in this, like, super quick patter about how it, they're the one responsible for saving Roosevelt. And they sort of keep cutting off Zangara. And then he is killed in the electric chair. And we can maybe stop talking about this song because you guys know that interesting. It's yeah. too bad. So, Emma Goldman. Uh, Famous, lefty, Jewish, radical, weirdo Emma Goldman. Here's a point where I actually do know about history. In real life, Cholgash kind of stalked Emma Goldman, and she tried to avoid him, and she didn't really know who he was, except that he was a creepy stalker. After he was caught and assassinated Bill McKinley, spoiler alert, they questioned Emma Goldman, as they often did, and she's like, I don't know who this dude is. He's a creepy stalker. So Emma Goldman gives a speech. Do you know if it's a historical speech? I don't know, but it's called What Does a Man Do? And it's basically this classic anarchist speech that is not out of place, even if it's not actually a real speech, with what sort of rhetoric Emma, Emma Goldman used. Um, and as opposed to in history where he was a creepy stalker and she ignored him, in this version he goes up to her and is like, I love you. And she's like, I believe in free love. We could have sex right now, but I'm very busy. And then walks away. <laughs> That's very apt description of that scene. And she's like, since I don't have time to have sex with you, take this pamphlet. The idea isn't mine alone, but mine. So there's some weird gender stuff. If of all the things you're going to change about history... Make Emma Goldman want to have sex with presidential assassin. It's like, yeah, she like, believed in free love, but that doesn't mean that she wanted to have sex with Leon Cholgosh. Yeah. Speaking of weird women stuff, the next interlude is between the two only ever attempted female assassins in American presidential history, Squeaky from... And Sarah Jane Moore. And it's one of those conversations where it's like, oh, like, look how wacky they both are. Look what happens when they try to interact. They're, like, talking about Charlie Manson because Squeaky Frome was Charlie Manson's one of a member of the Manson family. And as we'll get to, she is a would-be presidential assassin just because she figures it'll bring attention to Manson. And therefore, he'd convince people that he was right because she's clearly yeah. not firing on yeah. all cylinders. She thought that if she... Kill the president. They would have to bring him on on the witness stand. They would televise the trial because it was a big trial. Everyone would see Charles Manson instantaneously Bold believe in his like weird, creepy race war thing. Sweet Fun was released from prison and is living in upstate New York. Sarah Jane Moore is also out of prison now. What is important is that the, both these women tried to kill the same 
person. Ford? They both had to kill Ford, right? Yeah. Yes. So that's why they have all these scenes together, but also maybe because there's some weird gender politics in the show. They either spend their time, like, squealing together, particularly about men, or yelling at each other and threatening each other. And I know they're, like, attempted killers, and it doesn't have to be, like, ladies helping ladies, but it essentially puts them in, a, like, a cat fight for no reason, and it's weird. Yeah. Also, they're, like, also kind of comic relief in a way that some of the others aren't. Bick is also comic relief. We'll get to him. B- but Bick, it's a way that's, that strikes a little bit more sinister, and you don't really get that here. Yeah. It's like Squeaky from being like, Sarah Jane Moore, you're a dowdy housewife, and she being like, you're a slutty hippie, back at her, and then they pretend to try to kill Colonel Sanders with their eyes. Sarah Jane Moore has a Kentucky Fried Chicken thing, and she's like, I don't like Colonel Sanders because he reminds me of my father. And this squeaky from is like, Charlie Manson taught me how to kill someone with my eyes. And then they both stare at Colonel Sanders. Yeah, they also give them weird Oedipal complexes. Whatever. We don't have to talk about this right now. This happens in a musical. Also, they say that Sarah Jane Moore (laughs) went to high school with Charles Manson, and she's like, oh, he was great. They made that up. So blah, 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 blah. They talk about how they both want to kill the president. So Cholgosh actually gets two whole songs about his motivations. He gets kind of more material than any other assassin. Because like we said, he's sort of the most complex character. So we're on to the gun song. Which starts with Cholgosh singing this really sad, insightful, bitter thing about a gun kills many men. Because right. because of Men the, in the mines, men in the steel mills. Men in the mines to dig the iron, men in the mills to... Yes, um, yeah, so what's interesting though is, if you remember, in... How I Saved Roosevelt? In that song, Zangara mentions a couple, like, I don't like capitalists. But Cholgash's motivations and political affiliation seems a lot more legit. He's the most premeditated. Other than Booth. Other other than Booth. As we'll get to in that his song... See. I'm not, can't really tell what the Balladier's perspective is. The Balladier maybe is trying to mock him like other assassins. We'll get yeah. there. But we have the gun song, so it, which has several movements. See, I'm learning yeah. about all the different, the different ways to talk about score. Booth <laughs> shows up and does, and probably sings something and I don't know, maybe counter harmony. So it's all the assassins singing their various perspectives about guns. Booth is like, wow, a gun, it's minimal effort and you gracefully can have a lot of power, which is a very Booth thing to do. And then um, uh, Charles Gateau, who we'll get to, sings about how awesome guns are. And then Sarah Jane Moore sings about how awesome guns are. But they each do in a very in-character way. Moore does in a scatterbrain way of like, oh, where'd I put my gun? Oh no, that's like my lipstick or whatever it, it is. It is a great comedic moment when like they're in the middle of singing and she actually- Oh, she accidentally shoots off the gun. Yeah, and it like interrupts the song. And then, then she sort of atonally has to sing, shit, I shot it. But yeah, the Gato is almost sort of marveling at it. He calls it versatile invention. They and like then- have a cool quartet where they all harmonize. And then it ends with Cholgash again singing in that sad way about how many men a gun kills and then says, just, just one. one more- and then, Cholgosh, working man, born in the middle of Michigan, woke with a thought and away he ran to the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, in Buffalo. The proprietor's in the song, too. So he's like, I guess, snuck into some of these yeah. numbers. So here he's announcing that Ladies Bill McKinley is going right to be there. Me. President William McKinley. What happens next, though? Didn't Cholgosh see all of a sudden how things were done? Saw Bill McKinley there in the sun. Heard Bill McKinley say, folks, folks have, have fun. fun. Some men have everything and some have none, but that's, that's just fine. In, in the, the USA, USA, you can, can work your way to the head of the line. line. And as they're talking about the head of the line, people are waiting in line. Oh, it's a great, great, So, great like, Cholgosh just gets in the back of the line and waits in line to shake hands with the president. I was annoyed by the Americans, by the bystanders, 
in FDR's attempted assassination. Here, I think it's great where they're like, wow, he's so great. He likes beef and collecting coins. And then the balladeer is giving voice to them and he goes, who'd want to kill a man of goodwill like Big Bill? So you're right. What what perspective is the balladeer taking this on? Because he seems to be all over the place. I think it's the same kind of sarcastic dismissal where it's like, here's this nice guy, like just waiting to shake people's hands and everyone gets to wait online and everybody gets to meet him. And then, oh, the last person who meets him shoots him? Isn't that funny? Can we just take a quick moment to say that we are not endorsing presidential assassination? We're saying how sympathetic Cholgosh is. He did kill Bill McKinley in cold blood. Wrapped, wrapped him a handkerchief round his gun. Said nothing wrong about what I've done. Some men have everything and some have none. That's by design. And oh, what's this part? The idea wasn't mine alone, but mine. Oh my god, Goldman said that. It's over. So- Samuel Bick does not get any songs, but... He has all these weird interludes where he rants in a Santa suit about lots of things that piss him off about the world. That's just weird in terms of a structure of a musical. Right. Where, like, this is a have, like, very odd musical. And it's, like, vignettes that are entirely musical, vignettes that are not at all musical, and occasionally they're, like, half and half. Yeah. So, so they're long blocks of text about various just sort of rants that he went on. He was clearly... Mentally ill and also, like, completely, like, broken as a man. His bio was that he had just, like, failed at a lot of things. Yeah. But what's interesting is he sent out cassettes of himself, like, talking to a lot of famous people. And they choose to fictionalize his cassettes that he did send to Leonard Bernstein, who obviously was a friend of Stephen Sondheim. And Bick talks about West Side Story. I mean, like, Sondheim didn't write the the book of this musical, but it's a Stephen Sondheim musical that is quoting Stephen Sondheim. It's about somebody who focused unhealthily on a Stephen Sondheim musical. Anyway. Anyway, so we can skip over Bix rant and get to more... Yeah, I don't know what we're really supposed to get from it except, like, something, something, cynicism. Uh, so, From and Hinckley are interacting. Um, let's quickly note that yes. John Hinckley tried to kill Reagan? Tried to kill Reagan... To impress Jodie Foster, whom he he was stalking. Jodie Foster was a child actress. She was in the movie um, Taxi Driver, where she played a child prostitute who is rescued by a... Homicidal maniac. Homicidal maniac. Who tries to kill the president. In real life, John Hinckley became obsessed with Jodie Foster in this movie as a 13-year-old prostitute and stalked her for years, including when she went to college at Yale. Now, my college roommate's father went to Yale and lived in the same dorm as Jodie Foster... And his mailbox was only a few mailboxes down. And one day he was going to get his mail and he saw a creepy man stuffing letters into Jodie Foster's mailbox in the college dorm. And it turned out that that was the real John Hinckley, who then went on and tried to kill the president because of how much he loved Jodie Foster. So when Squeaky From is interacting with Hinckley, it is in the context of her mocking him for being like weak and impotent. And they sing... It's a love song, and it sounds like a normal love song, but they're both in love with people who either are cult leaders or don't know they exist, and because of that, they killed the president. And the song is called, I Am Unworthy of Your Love. This is where I have to briefly bring up Forbidden Broadway. It is sung instead as a song of actors trying to appeal to Stephen Sondheim, because he is this also sort of like cold and distant figure who is like sadistic towards them. Just like Charles Manson. Yeah. And, and I guess this is also in the sort of, like, 70s romantic ballad style. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and also the words are freaky because it's like a love song, but then it's, um, 
Let me feel fire. Let me drink poison. Tell me to tear my heart in two. If that's what you want me to do. Also, you are wind and devil and God. God. <laughs> this is another case where I honestly think, no offense to the person whose name we can't pronounce who wrote the book, like the lyrics are the strongest in terms of getting across the thematic message in a non-corny way. Like, like in, I think in every song, the lyrics really do a fantastic job of sort of getting to the themes through character motivations. So yeah, the song is great. Hinkley fails to kill Reagan. So the next weird interlude is also worth mentioning because it's also weird gender-wise because it's between Moore and Gateau and Gateau like almost sexually assaults Moore. Yeah. And it's like also sort of written off as a joke. I mean, I guess you could direct it otherwise, but it's... What it does do, which once again, you can still think is kind of a sketchy move, is make Gateau seem funny and scary at the same time. And that he comes off as legitimately... A, what does he call himself? I'm a terrifying and imposing figure. He says a lot of stuff like that. And the number ends with him killing Garfield. And so what I, what I will say as a historical note is a lot of this musical is about our historical perspective of these assassins. And this is the way that we sort of imagine things went down. Is Ekato was just like, I want to be ambassador to France. And Garfield was like, what are you talking about, weirdo? And then Gateau shoots him. What I wanted to note is that one of Garfield's actual accomplishments in his presidency was weeding out corruption and reducing favoritism and just sort of giving ambassadorships to friends of his. But his breaking point was actually relevant to Garfield's political career. So we are, of course, up to the Ballad of Gateau. I like us to pick like favorite and least favorite lyrics from the show. This song is disqualified. Because many of the lyrics from this song are actual things that Charles Gateau not only said, but wrote as poetry and asked to be sung at his funeral. It makes this song kind of creepy. The general refrain is, I am going to the Lordy, I am so glad. Because he is about to be hanged for killing the president. But what the song does, which is clever, is as he sings about how totally okay he is with dying, he gets more and more freaked out and tries to sort of run back down. This is like, in in the production I saw, there's this raised platform with a noose on it, and he's climbing the stairs, singing about how happy he is to die, and then like, he slowly starts backing down and tries to run away, until the balladeer, once again, acting as this weird omniscient narrator, is like, you know what? You're great. And then he's like, I am great. I am going to die. And sort of like convinces him to go through with dying. Yeah. And the balladeer also plays up the celebrity that Gateau becomes during his trial and execution. Yeah. Like, it's like, we get it. We talked earlier about lyrical dissonance. This one has the best lyrical dissonance, I think, of any of the songs. There's tension you really feel between like how happy he's pretending to be and how like, morbid the scene is. The song ends with, look on the bright side, trust in tomorrow and the Lord. And it's like, there is no tomorrow for you, Charles Gateau. You're about to be hanged. And then he does. Oh, yeah. And then another awful more from scene where Moore accidentally kills her dog. And then both of them try and fail to kill Gerald Ford. They, like, who, shoot at this picture of Gerald like, Ford and no, miss no, no, every the, time. No, 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 the Reagan is the photo. Ford shows up and is, like, goofy, and the whole scene is played for laughs because they're, like, hanging out with Ford and they don't realize him. He's like, oh, I was President Ford. And then, like, they're out of bullets and she's just, like, throwing bullets at him and yelling yeah. bang. The times that the show kind of falls short happens to be with female characters. Okay, then we get an, uh, another big rant, Santa suit, yelling are we, about... Are we supposed to, like... It's these big ranty wall of text like you see on the internet. Are we supposed to get something from it? I think yes and no. No. Something about Saudi Arabia 
sewage closes, Jersey beaches. Mm, no, let's it's, get this. Yeah, but um, anyway. Hamburgers, ends, fucking hamburgers. It ends with um, Bick failing to kill Nixon. What he tried to do was hijack a plane. He actually um, killed one or two people during the hijacking, but um, like shot himself when he was cornered. Yeah. And apparently it didn't even affect Nixon's schedule. Yeah. So we're seeing each of these assassins either fail and succeed. And if they succeed, they die. And if they fail, in Zangara's case, he died because he killed someone. Or they, they, they sort of get, like, shuffled off stage left. They, like, yeah. they get their shot and they go off stage. So, no. And they basically don't really show up again once they're sort of, once they've, they've, they've succeeded or failed. Right. So now we have all the assassins back on stage together. Um, for the first time since the opening? Either the Balladeer or Bick in the original version actually lead this song where they're all coming out and saying, all right, this show has no pretense. The show is not subtle. We are the subversion of the American dream. Yeah. We want our prize. It's another national anthem that you don't hear. And that's the one about us. We're, we're angry. We're very mad. It is the one moment in the show where everyone gets the most serious attention. Even more says who had never had a moment other than comic relief up to this point says, I did it so my friends would know where I was coming from. I did it so I would know where I was coming from. And well, BS, it's at least sort of the, the closest we get right. to sympathizing. Once again, my point, the lyrics are stronger than any of the sort of dialogue scenes. And, and the balladeer does express, I don't know if he's teasing them or sympathizing, but he's expressing at them, you did what you did and you made people sad but then people moved on because that's what America does is as much as it's about all these dreams, it's about resilience. Right. But what's the least convincing here is the balladeer's like, and some dreams come true. I hear a mailman won the lottery. Right? And basically, the the assassins shout the balladeer off the stage in this song. This is where I guess it's most clear what the, what the balladeer's role is and that he's basically trying to minimize their role in history. He's the force of people trying to move on. Right? That like to deny their, their the influence of the assassins... And everyday people's dreams come true, and no one cares about you. So I, now that the balladeer has lost control, they're off the carnival grounds and running into history, and they run right into 1963. Uh, so this is definitely my favorite scene in the show. Well, and, and strong. Uh, well, more right. or less, and... It sort of takes this notion of these assassins from different periods in time kind of coming together. Instead of just having them play off each other in a funny way, they basically all come together and convince Lee Harvey Oswald to kill John F. Kennedy. This is the main place where the off-Broadway and Broadway productions diverge. The Broadway production, at least the soundtrack, has more material on it. The cast recording. The recording has more material. Are we going to touch on that extra song? We will touch on that extra song, but first, what is the narrative difference here? The major narrative difference is that the actor who plays the balladeer in the revival is Neil Patrick Harris. Doesn't have to be Neil Patrick. Sorry. He's Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick Harris, pre-comeback. Theater knows who's good. Just saying. Neil Patrick Harris <laughs> plays both the Balladeer and Lee Harvey Oswald. In some sense, the Balladeer becomes Lee Harvey Oswald. And I think this totally doesn't work. I don't know what the thought would be. That some... It's like, oh, you could become the next presidential yeah. assassin. The American dream represented by the balladeer has become Lee Harvey Oswald. It's dumb. I don't want to talk about it. Or or, Plus, may, or maybe they just feel weird bringing him up last minute. And they're like, what if he was there all along? It's better yeah, to just bring him in because, last minute. And actually, I think, at least in the recording we heard, I don't know the name of the actor. 
He's phenomenal as Lee Harvey Oswald. When it's Neil Patrick he Harris is. playing the balladeer and Lee Harvey Oswald, I feel like he's trying to like make that connection of this actor is just lives this character. So what happens in the scene, which I love, is that Lee Harvey Oswald has gone to the book depository to kill himself. Yep. He has no gun. He has no rifle. He doesn't know about John F. Kennedy. Yeah, how is he going to kill himself if he doesn't have a gun? Maybe just jump out the window. His wife hates him. He feels rejected by the U.S. and Russia because in real life, you know, he actually defected to Russia and defected back to the U.S. Was constantly harassed by FBI agents, apparently. Yeah. What what he he talks about in this scene. And John Wilkes Booth, smarmy dick, walks on into the book depository and, like, casually is like, I know everything about your life, Lee Harvey Oswald. I know about your wife. You know, you're just trying to kill yourself because you want people to remember you. You have this fantasy of, like, people crying at your funeral and finally being noticed, but no one's going to care. It's brutal. Oh, it's it's fantastic. He says, you know how they're going to care? If you kill the president. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. I don't even have a weapon. And in the creepiest line in the entire show, John Wilkes Booth says, then what's in that uh, case over there? And Oswald's like some curtain rods and opens it up and there's a rifle in it. It's like this bizarre, magical, realist, creepy thing. Well, so they reference a conspiracy. They're like, they're always going to be talking about the conspiracy, but this, this is, is the, the cons- real conspiracy. That is my favorite line in the show. Surprise. Like, I love the idea, however cheesy it comes off and cliched it is at this point, that like the real conspiracy is this like one sad, lonely person lashing out at the president. And everyone trying to find some way of explaining it of like, well, there was a, it was the, it was the CIA, it was this, it was that, and it's just like one person who slipped through the cracks. And basically, then all the all the other assassins join John Wilkes Booth on the stage. Booth also, by the way, references death of a salesman once again. That might have been the part that made me almost cry today. Actually, was yeah. his like his like mean subversion. But Willie Loman, that's a part I could never play in this sort of like you you can't just kill yourself. You need to make your mark on history. You need to kill the president. And all the other assassins come on. Zangara starts speaking in Italian. Everyone starts translating for him. Oh, when they're telling Oswald, we're your family. Ah. Yeah. It's like James and the Giant Peach, but evil. And there's also the great scene where, like, John Hinckley knows everything about Lee Harvey Oswald. Right. He was obsessed with him. They apparently found books about him in his home after he was arrested. And, like, he basically is like, can I have your autograph? Like, you're the reason I exist. And basically all the other assassins come together and are like, if we are just a bunch of rejects but once you kill the president like that's what makes all our acts meaningful many many people seeing the show would have been alive when and like cognizant when john f kennedy was assassinated yeah. so i feel like now the show loses some of its power because like that line about them being like if you kill the president like that breaks people and then they like know what we did and it like becomes this force in history is much more powerful for people who are like actually lived through the Kennedy assassination, which yeah. neither of us did. Um, there is a line that they've cut some some productions, a couple lines that I don't think are so good where they're just like, oh, weird cameos from other political assassins like Bobby Kennedy and, and yeah, MLK, um, like, you know. Yeah. It, um, Saran Saran and James Earl Ray. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he, it's an amazing turnaround scene where you have, where he really just goes from wanting to kill himself and being shocked at the idea of killing the president to just doing it, and that it had ultimately, like everyone else, it had nothing really to do with politics. the The reason that people come presidential assassins is because it turns from turns from the political into the personal. Yeah. So he kills John F. Kennedy, and then I think in maybe the I think the original production 
They then hold up a picture of Jack Ruby. The the famous picture where Jack Ruby is killing yeah, Oswald. Of Jack Ruby killing Oswald. So we, we we basically get Oswald's death as well. So everything is wrapped up. But so oof. And it's everything is perfect, except once again in the revival, there's an extra song. I just would urge everyone to go and just listen to this because like I we can't do it justice by reading out everyone being like, I admire you, I respect you, make us proud of you. Without you, we're a bunch of freaks. With you, we're a force of history. We yes, become immortal. Saying, Finally, we belong. Uh, oh, God. We're going to get back to that. We're going to get back to that because I have a thesis about Stephen Sondheim. Great. So there's a song ad in the revival called Something Just Broke, which kind of out of nowhere shifts the focus. And maybe this actually was a response to 9-11 very explicitly. Or maybe it was a response to people getting further from JFK's assassination. It was probably more a 9-11 thing. Yeah, but basically it's... Um, it's regular Americans singing about where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. Well, it depends when he wrote. It suddenly shifts the focus to the people who at this part have been like sort of side characters in other people's songs and gives a voice to like the actual suffering that comes from living through a presidential assassination. And so basically, yeah. basically it has people from every assassination singing about where they were and how they felt when they learned the president was shot. It doesn't really work in the show, but I think it's a beautiful song. But what's much more powerful is if you go right from that assassination to the finale. Ooh, I just got chills going down my spine. So, hey, how about, like, a creepy reprise of an opening number? Can I interest you in one of those? Um, sure. Great. Can it have Lee Harvey Oswald this time? Yes. So we get the big finale, reprise of Everybody's Got the Right to their dreams. But what's interesting is they go, as they're go, like, striding forward with their guns and like, oh, spoiler alert, like, the last thing they do is like, shoot the audience, whoa, or like, shoot up in the air. It's not a spoiler alert because we've reached the end of the musical. As they're striding forward before that last verse, they're singing, free country means you get to connect. Means yes. the right to expect that you'll have an effect that you're going to connect. And they, and they just keep sort of chanting. Oh, oof. What I will say about Stephen Sondheim is... The running theme throughout all his musicals is this deep, stupid need humans have for connection with one another and the ways it manifests itself, often yeah. toxic. Yeah. And this is, I think... It's like, think of Company, think of Follies, mm -hmm. think of Evening Primrose, even. Think of Gypsy. And it could sound like this is a stretch. Right. And plus, it almost seems like a, like a cliche. Like, oh, yeah, sure, the theme is people want to connect. But he, he always takes, I think, a darker route to that than other people. This is like, we want to connect with you, but there's something dark and ugly inside of us. And what makes Sondheim so amazing is that this is against the backdrop of a lot of musical theater basically being romances about two people connecting. And I think that that's what makes his stuff so amazing and so, so continually subversive. So, yeah, whew, that is Assassins. And uh -huh. what I like to mention now is Tony Awards. So, Assassins... <laughs> was delayed multiple years because of 9-11, and it finally came out in 2004, and as is often the case with an off-Broadway transfer when the off-Broadway production was like a while ago and very famous and the show's been places since, is they counted it as a revival. It was the same year as both Wicked and Avenue Q, so it might be for the best, but it did really well. It won revival. Michael Cerverus got a supporting actor for playing John Wilkes Booth. It got direction and orchestrations and lighting for what it's worth. So it wasn't eligible for, like, score, book, those sorts of things. Got it. So, Izzy, what is your least favorite lyric in this musical? Off the top of my head, I would probably, I already mentioned this in that opening number, like, geez, lady, don't you know that guns go boom? Eh. 
You stole my least favorite lyric. Well. Okay, so I'll have to go to my backup lyric. Um, in the Ballad Charles Gateau, it says that he should be committed until he should hang. And that sounds like a weird way of phrasing the sentencing. Yeah. It's like sentenced into that he should hang. All right, give me how many? How many? I have one favorite. Okay, good. Right. I got my other favorites out of the way before to leave my one true favorite, which I think is just for assassin. It's something that like sounds cheesy, but then once you go through the whole emotional arc of the show and you get to the end, it totally works. Which is in everybody's got the right. Okay. No one can be put in jail for their dreams. I almost went with that one, Izzy, stop! As we've discussed, it's funny, it's like, oh, ha, good joke. Your, if your dream is to kill the president, you will go to jail. But I think that it really, really works. In that, like, in that final number, when it's, when it, like, like you said, it's about connecting, and like, I couldn't connect, why couldn't I connect? I was told that everyone had a right to their dreams. Why is my dream being taken away from me? Yeah. So what's your favorite, Gabby? Do I go with something with with punch and like emotional weight, or do I go with something that's really clever because it's Stephen Sondheim? Wait, can I, mean, I guess what yours is? Is it "Damn You, Lincoln, You Righteous Whore"? No, that's, that's yours, that's Izzy. Good. Mine is um, Johnny Booth was a handsome devil, got up in his rings and fancy silks, had him a temper but kept it level. Everybody, Everybody called him Wilkes. I just like to go Wilkes. I want to say some finishing thoughts about this musical. When you're watching, you're like, yeah, I get it, man. And it's hard to kind of spit back. Izzy, thank you for being the first person to break the Sondheim seal. Like, this was no easy task. And luckily, you are weirdly obsessed with a musical about killing people. Thanks for that wonderful compliment, Gabby. You can find me on social media, but please read the first maybe couple or three volumes of uh, Shade the Changing Man by Peter Milligan, and you'll have a great time. In the USA, you can have your say, where you can set your goals and seize the day, but can give him the freedom to work your way to the head of the line. Thing. Thanks for listening to Pick Little Talk a Little. You can follow us on Twitter at Paltal Podcast, as in P A L T A L. Email us at paltalpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Pick a little, talk a little. We are produced and edited by the incomparable Rachel Jacobs. You can find her at rachel-jacobs.com or on Twitter at WTFRJK. I've been your host, Gabrielle Gazelowitz. I'm at gabriellegazelowitz.com, which is spelled in a way that you probably wouldn't guess. And I'm on Twitter at Gabby Gazelowitz. So see if you can find me. You should rate and review us on iTunes. That's a thing that people do. I don't actually listen to podcasts on iTunes. You should rate and review us on iTunes, even if you don't listen to us on iTunes. So until next time. And as they sing in Guys and Dolls, goodbye now. I love that song. I know, you sing it constantly, and I sing it somewhat, like, semi-constantly because you sing it constantly. It was the alarm on my phone for a long time, too. I would wake up to, oh gosh, working man. It's a great way to start the day. What does that do to a person? <laughs> what does a man do? I don't know, ask Emma Goldman. All right, all right, all right, all right.